Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Before Pastor Matt comes up to preach, I will read our scripture text for this morning, which comes from chapter 2 in the book of Ruth. We will be reading verses 10 through 12. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The word of the Lord. Peace be with you. Um, We're going to unpack all of... Uh, Ruth 2, so if you want to follow along, you can. I'll be reading it in chunks like we did last week and trying to explore it together. <clears throat> and we'll pause at various sections and reflect. Let me pray for us as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the folks that are here. Thank you for the folks that are not here but are listening in or call this place home. And Father, we ask that your spirit open our our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive this morning. I I pray that your spirit helps me to speak with clarity um, and to speak with grace. And I pray, Father, that your spirit heals and restores and offers peace to those of us who feel a sense of loss or a sense of confusion or a sense of just struggle and wrestling with the difficulties of life, and uh, we trust that you do these things because that's the kind of God that you are. Uh, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Um, By way of reminder, in case you missed it or you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, we started it last week, and it's just just a wonderful little story. It's a short story. You can read it rather quickly, Um, but just to kind of refresh us on where we are, picking up in chapter two, I know the, the scripture reading this morning was right smack dab in the middle of the story. Uh, But it's a story of a woman named Naomi and um, her family, her husband, Elimelech, and um, they are from Bethlehem. And um, there's a famine in the land, and so they flee the the land of Bethlehem to go to a place called Moab, which is actually historically uh, a land of people that are enemies um, to Israel. And uh, them and their two sons, and in that space and that time, the sons get married to two Moabite women, that being Orpah and Ruth. And um, tragedy strikes, and um, Naomi's husband dies, and the two sons die. And in that space and in that time of grief, they find out that uh, the Lord has visited Bethlehem, and so Naomi wants to head back to Bethlehem, to her people, and to her homeland, and seek of food and provision. And uh, she encourages her two daughter-in-laws to go home. Orpah does return back to her family, but Ruth clings to Naomi and returns with her. Um, and so now we have these two poor uh, widows back in Bethlehem, one of which um, Ruth being a foreigner uh, from these enemy, this enemy people of Moab. And so loss and tragedy has marked their lives. And I spoke last week, I kind of was trying to share like, if you try to kind of encapsulate the book of Ruth, it's a story of loss. 
It's a story of loyalty. It's a story of love. And I want that to hover over your imagination as you try to read and understand the book. Um, and so loss and tragedy has marked these two women's lives as when we pick up in chapter 2. And so the question now as you begin to read chapter 2 is, will it change? That's what the author is kind of putting into your head. You're, you're gripped by uh, the compelling nature of all of this. And will it change? What will be of their lives? What will be of their hearts? in the midst of their grief, and in the midst of their loss. And so let me just pick up in, in verse 1 of the chapter. This is what it says. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, uh, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi looked back at her and said, go, my daughter. Now, let's just stop there for a second because that, this is important to understand. There's a little bit of background and context that's important. Risk, um, risk, danger sets the stage for this chapter as you open it up. Um, Naomi and Ruth are poor. They uh, need food. Uh, they need provision. And Ruth and Faith knows that she needs to step up and do something about that. Um, she wants to go out, she wants to help, she wants to do something about their poverty. So she's going out to glean in the fields as a poor widowed foreigner, but the world she inhabits is dangerous, and you need to know that uh, as you read the chapter. Um, this is why essentially what Ruth says to Naomi is essentially she's going out into these fields as a poor woman, as a foreigner, which makes it even worse, and she's essentially saying, who knows, uh, to, as she speaks to Naomi, who knows, maybe... Maybe they'll let me. Um, maybe, who knows, maybe the person that owns the field won't harass me. Um, maybe they won't touch me. Um, maybe um, they won't complain or be violent or vicious towards me. Um, maybe they'll deal kindly with me. Who knows what will happen to me. But I'm going to try. And so because they're desperate, Naomi encourages her to go ahead and do so. Now realize that um, risk and danger should not have been the case for Ruth. And uh, for those of you that have a penchant for justice, I notice the generation coming up does, realize and remember and reflect always that God has always been about justice and mercy. And um, risk should not have been the case for Ruth. God had long ago created justice and mercy laws to curb oppression and poverty within the community. If you go to books like uh, places like Leviticus 19 or Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy 26, you'll see there, you'll, you'll read about particular laws that God instituted for his people, and you can see the institution of gleaning laws and something called the third-year tithe as well. And basically, the people of God were commanded not to reap the full harvest of their field. So if you owned land and you owned a field, and that was your livelihood and, your, and the produce of it, you were not permitted uh, by law to harvest the edges of it. They were to leave the edges untouched. Um, they were also not, as, you, as, they went, as the reapers went through the fields, they would inevitably um, not get every bit of it, and they were commanded not to go back over it a second time. Um, basically, you could not get 100% profit of what um, you had in your fields. And the reason why was this was purposely left uh, by God, he wanted them to purposely leave it so that the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners could come in behind and gather their own food. This is what Ruth and Naomi are thinking, and they're tapping in to these laws. Um, that was law. 
But, <laughs> unfortunately, people are not good at following laws. <laughs> people are not great at following rules. Um, never have been. <laughs> never will be. And uh, even in my <laughs> experience and your experience and in the Bible's uh, stories, um, even the people that are tend to be, they, they, they tend to be rule followers and law abiders, they often end up snooty and prideful about it. Um, and we're a mess as people. And uh, the messiness is the cultural backdrop for Ruth. And so put that in your mind as you read the chapter. So risky as this is, something incredible though, something incredibly unexpected happens in chapter 2. And something you might call a wild coincidence. And you're meant to almost chuckle as you read it. And so let's pick up in verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come upon a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was, oh, from the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, who's, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, Well, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, so Boaz approaches Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And then at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over even. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also put out some of from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And so Ruth happens upon this field that just happens to belong to Boaz, who just happens to be a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. Now the author clues you in. He, he, he's, he's foreshadowing and he's kind of dropping clues and hints along the way. And the author's already told you in the opening line that he's a worthy man. So apparently Boaz is very virtuous, and you're seeing his virtuous behavior in this chapter. And almost comically, Boaz just happens to show up in the field that day. 
and take notice of Ruth. And after doing a little homework and finding out who she is, Boaz treats Ruth with incredible kindness, which is what you just read about. And he essentially says, look, stay in my field. Keep close to my servants. Don't worry about going anywhere else to get your water. Take the water from, from the people, my servants, that they bring. And don't worry about your safety. I don't want you thinking about that. You'll be fine here. And I'll see to it that no one touches you or acts inappropriately. And notice Ruth doesn't presume on this generosity, does she? No, she, she knows who and what she represents. She knows where she's from. And so she's shocked by this kind of favor. And if this wasn't kind enough, he then feeds her and he essentially changes her status so that now she, she doesn't have to just grab the leftovers and she, he sees to it that she has plenty to go home with when she returns. And so Ruth will have quite a story to tell her mother-in-law, Naomi, when she gets home. And she gets to tell all of this wild coincidence, um, and it will get even stranger. And so we'll just read the ending here, picking up in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought and Without, she gave her uh, the food that she had left over from being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where, where did you clean today? Where, where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, well, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, um, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth spends the day gleaning in Boaz's field, and she goes home with about a week's worth of food, and she brings dinner home with her for Naomi. And Naomi, of course, is stunned by how well she's done. And Ruth explains the day's events, and Naomi gives thanks to God uh, and drops this little foreshadowing announcement that Boaz is, quote, a redeemer. Now, in Israelite law, a kinsman redeemer was a person who had the right to buy back the ancestral land of a family who had either sold or lost their property, which in their day and in their culture, that was their only way of provision. And so Naomi had probably lost or sold her ancestral land in Bethlehem previous to going out to Moab. So she had nothing. The only complication is that not only would the Redeemer need some kind of family connection, not only would he need the money to pay for the land? He would also have to be willing to marry the widowed daughter-in-law, which in this case is Ruth. And so that remains to be seen in the story. Wink, wink. Right? As I said last week, which is why we're doing it in Advent, you have to wait in the tension. You can't skip ahead. And so Ruth remains working uh, with this kind of privileged 
status in Boaz's field the rest of the harvest season, which rounds out the chapter for you. Congratulations, you've read Ruth 1 and 2 now. Today in this season of Advent, we speak of peace. We speak of peace in the liturgy, or shalom is the word that's often used in the scripture. Shalom has a meaning that's much deeper and richer and broader than simply the absence of conflict. Many of you probably know that. Shalom, peace, means wholeness, making something complete, mending something broken, for instance, and putting it back together. You can have shalom inside you and in your heart. You can have shalom between you and another person. You can have shalom in your fence. If it's broken down, you can put it back together and make it whole again. That's what shalom means. And I would tell you up front that when I preach, I try not to preach to the best parts of you. (laughs) I actually try to preach to the broken parts. I don't imagine when I prep, I don't imagine a room like this and you in it. I don't imagine a room full of people who always feel complete. Sorry. I don't imagine a room uh, full of people who always feel whole. I don't imagine people who feel at rest. Uh, I don't imagine a room full of people who are at peace inside, in, in your families, in your relationships, or maybe you don't feel at peace with God. I don't imagine a room like that at all. I imagine, I try to fill my imagination as I preach with fractured hearts. That's what I preach to. And you might be thinking, oh, it all makes sense now. I do that on purpose. I do that in hopes of helping us see the mending that needs to happen. I do that in hopes of pointing out the mending that is happening right now in your midst, right underneath your nose. In uh, Kate Diakmillo's story, The Tale Despero, the antagonist, Kiriosuro, he's a rat. He's born in darkness. He's born in the dungeon. But he longs for the light, the author says. And so one day he ventures out of the darkness into the light of the dining hall. And he's struck by everything and how bright it is and how wonderful it is. And oopsie, he falls from the chandelier into the queen's bowl of soup. And when the queen gets sight of the rat, she's terrified. And she screams out and falls over dead. The princess... The queen's daughter, of course, is heartbroken, and she looks at Roscuro, the antagonist who's being formed in that moment, with disgust. She looks at the rat with disgust, and Kate says that the princess looks at Kiriosuro with this look that says, go back to the dungeon, go back to the darkness where you belong. And she says that it breaks his heart. And then she writes this. There are those hearts, reader, that never mend again once they are broken. 
Or if they do mend, they heal themselves in a crooked and lopsided way, as if sewn together by a careless craftsman. Such was the fate of Curious Girl. His heart was broken. Picking up the spoon and placing it on his head, speaking of revenge, these things helped him to put his heart together again. But it was, alas, put together wrong. You see, uh, Ruth and Naomi have broken hearts. Life has been tragic for them. And the temptation and the risk was always there with him to never let it mend or to mend it in a lopsided way, to be filled with bitterness or a feeling of revenge and anger towards the world or towards God. But what we see in the scene that you've read is that God is doing this mending work in their lives. He's doing the thing that he likes to do. He's, God is doing the thing, the mending that he always likes to do. He's just doing it through this man named Boaz. And that's what the author's trying to get us to see. The author wants us to see that Boaz is a stand-in for uh, God's character and methods. Essentially, Boaz's actions, his words, all of it, they're acting as the hands and the feet of God's heart. The underlining through line is that God always knows what you, quote, leave and forsake to find refuge in him. He always knows where you're at in the broken places in the hopes that you might find peace in mending. Look at it again in verse 11 and 12. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I connect this to God because this is what God always wants to do. These verses are telling you that Ruth is rewarded for taking refuge in God. But the deeper truth is here, this, this is always God's disposition. It's his, always his posture towards the weak, the broken, and the vulnerable. I'll give you a classic example. And Jesus himself, as he enters into Jerusalem, and he's about to go up and pay for the sins of the world on the cross, but before that takes place, he weeps over the city. Do you remember the scene? He weeps over people that don't want to recognize what he's offering. He says this in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who, have, who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you're not willing. You see, when it comes to the broken, God has and will be a place of refuge and peace forever. Boaz might be saying, now, I want you to see this, please. Boaz might be saying that Ruth is being, quote, repaid. But in essence, all Ruth has done is recognize her desperate need and longing to find protection and provision. Because notice Ruth says it that way, 10 and 13. Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. 
I have found favor in your eyes, my, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though, though I am not one of your servants. See, Ruth is, what she's saying is she's, she's no hero. She's, she's humble. You could say that she's humiliated. She's not resting on her laurels. She's not proud or entitled in the field. She's just simply serving, and she is simply shocked by the favor that she's getting. Ruth knows, and you need to see this, Ruth is a nobody. She's an outsider. And not only that, and please don't miss this, or the story loses its impact. She has a background of worshiping other gods. But the reality is, because Ruth is in the presence of someone like Boaz, Ruth is unjudged, she's unharmed, she's understood, and she's provided for. And another way of putting it, theologically speaking, is she's receiving unearned mercy and grace. And that's exactly how Ruth interprets this. Her words display that. The point of everything I'm saying here, the, one, the question that I would love to put into your imagination is this. Do we see our life, do you see your life in the same terms? Do you see it that way? Both the fractured parts of your heart and the truth that Jesus is always willing and ready to mend it. It doesn't mean that you won't experience pain, trouble, anger, guilt, or fear, but it means that you won't need to remember, or sorry, you do need to remember his words and his work. Jesus says in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. I'll never cast them out. Jesus won't cast you out because he's died to mend you. He died to put an end to the hostility between you and God. Or as Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace isn't just to mend your heart so that you no longer fear God or run from God. It's there to give you a purpose. That peace is there to give a calling. This is Jesus' undermining work of the prince of darkness in this world. God is bringing wholeness into a world full of brokenness precisely by making peace with us so that we join in his work of undermining the world's broken patterns. This is who you are. You're just on a journey of learning it over and over and over again. This is one of the great, beautiful, but challenging calls upon your life as a Christian. Advent is a season heightening this ever-present gift and work that we share together. Advent isn't just about what we wait for, Jesus' ultimate peace. It's also about reminding us of what we participate in. To be a Christian, friends, is to be a peacemaker while you wait for the Prince of Peace. That's who you are. That's the calling upon your life. Every, call, every Christian has this calling and opportunity backed by the cosmic power of Christ. 
doesn't mean that we always succeed. It doesn't mean we always see peace in our families or in our relationships or friends, our workplace, whatever it is. It doesn't mean that we're always able to create it or it doesn't mean that you're always going to receive it back from people. But we keep going. We don't give up. We don't lose heart. We keep pressing for peace because we know this will be our ending place. You see, in the same way, and maybe you've heard this before, in the same way hurt people hurt people. This is a truth. I see it all the time. Hurt people hurt people. (laughs) And the Bible's reversing it all the time through Christ. In other words, forgiven people forgive. People that have received mercy offer mercy. People that have been provided for and given protection, even when they didn't deserve it, provide for others. This is the storyline of the scriptures. This is what Christ is doing. He's not just creating in you an inner peace, knowing that, wait, I was born into a hostile world where I have hostility with God because I am an enemy of God, and and, and Christ has reconciled me to God by his work on the cross. But he's doing so in part also so that I go out into the world and act in a way that is completely different than the world's patterns. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 2 through 4, says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see the connection I'm making hopefully. This is a bit of conjecture. So allow me, please, to preach a little bit of conjecture. Any complaints? No? Okay, I'll go forward then. (laughs) This is a theory. This is conjecture. But I think that this, this idea of God making peace and mending broken hearts, not just to bring them an inner peace and a sense of inner hope, a sense of pressing forward, but also in changing the dynamics in the community and in the culture and in the world around him. You see, he's doing it in part by changing people and transforming people so that they then go and do the same in the world. And it's almost like he's undermining the whole world in this very ordinary way. See, mind you that the book of Ruth doesn't have one miracle in it. Go look for it. You won't find one. The whole book of Ruth is based on ordinary circumstances like kindness, generosity, marriage, conception. That's the book of Ruth. But you're meant to see it as God's divine work of grace. But that's your life. Are there any miracles in your life? Some of you might be, might be saying, oh, I've seen them. I've seen them. My guess is, is they're actually quite ordinary but you interpret them as God's divine intervention. That's how it works. He does things through people. Now, my conjecture is this. Think about it for a second. While Boaz is a stand-in for God's character, where did he learn it? 
He's so kind to Ruth. He's so compassionate. He's over the top, gracious and merciful to Ruth. And you're not told the reason. It's just this wild coincidence. Why is, it, why is he doing this? Where did he learn it? Did God come down and have a conversation with Boaz? Did God come down into the scene and into the field and drag Boaz off to the side and say, now listen here. I don't want you to be mean to this woman, be kind to this woman. No, no, no. None of that takes place. I actually think it's much more ordinary than that. My theory on Boaz is he grew up around people who found peace in God. My guess is Boaz grew up around people who knew what it meant to get grace, undeserved grace. I think Boaz grew up in a lineage of peacemakers. He grew up under a lineage of grace. To see it, to know what I'm talking about, you just look at Matthew 1 and read Jesus' genealogy. I'll read one line from it. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Rahab, if you remember, because we talked about her a few months back, Rahab was a foreign prostitute in the land of Canaan. And what she did was she, forsake, she, she left her whole world, her whole culture, everything, and took refuge under God by hiding the spies. That's Boaz's mom. If it's not Boaz's mom... It's Boaz's grandmother. We don't really know, but it's one of them. So my guess, my theory, my hypothesis, and I'm happy to argue it with you, is Boaz's home had a culture of grace. I imagine Rahab living out her days, always saying in her home things like this, we don't judge in this house. We don't harm, we don't oppress, we forgive people, we welcome them in, we don't condemn, we offer peace, we offer peace to people no matter what they have done, why? And I can almost hear Rahab saying, because God did it for me. Because while the world around me and the community around me only saw me as a prostitute in my former life, God didn't. God welcomed me in. And my guess is, is that Boaz saw that, he heard that, he was immersed in it. God was building a family of peacemakers. God is making them still. And so I don't know where you're at, and I don't know how you come in this morning, and I don't know how you experience the season of Advent and Christmas and all of that. Maybe it's all joy for you, maybe it's all peace for you, maybe you look at the lights, the, the presents, the the parties, all of it, and you just have nothing but sheer peace. But I know that many of you suffer. Many of you struggle. Many of you have anger, guilt, shame, fear, regret. There's all sorts of these feelings. Loss, these things come up. Here's what I would remind you, and I think that the story of Ruth reminds us of, is that God does his best work in the negative, not in the positive. He's doing his best work on you in the negative. 
If you're always going from strength to strength, you will struggle to see the grace that has been bestowed upon you. So when you feel broken and when you feel terrible loss, when you feel a sense of like, I'm not enough and I don't measure up, that is always when God is doing mending work. That is the space that he's doing it in. So don't suppress it, push it out, defend it, any of that business. Go to Jesus in the broken negative spaces that you find yourself in because that is the work that he wants to do. That is the place that he always is showing up. John 14, verse 27, I'll read it again. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I don't know what you might be afraid of in this season. There's plenty of things to be afraid of. But Jesus has given him himself. I remind us the same thing I remind us every week, that this bread points to and reminds us of Christ's body that is broken for us. And this cup of wine represents Christ's blood that is shed for us to bring peace, to reconcile us to God and to each other, that the hostility has been killed. And so wherever you're at this morning, if you are a Christian, you're invited to come forward to this station or to this station, taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in the wine or the juice. You do not have to be a member of this church. You do not have to be sinless. Newsflash, there's no such thing. What you're called to do is to reflect in a place of sincerity, to recognize that you are in need of grace. You are in need of unmerited, undeserved mercy from Christ that he offers. And if that is true of you and that he is Lord to you, you're invited to come forward, whoever you are, and take part. And if that is not where you're at, friend, I am so glad you're here. You're welcome to always be here. We will always welcome in people no matter where they're at. And so ask questions, ask for prayer. As always, there'll be a pastor or two in the prayer room off to the side, ready to sit with you to pray over any suffering or sin that you have in your life. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the peace that you're putting into my heart and to the hearts of others. And the lack of peace that we often feel is from the sufferings and the sins of the world and the sufferings and sins, the sins that I participate in. And I ask that it's in the places that I don't push it out, but I, it's in those places that I need to recognize it, I need to confess it, I need to be open and honest about those things and recognize that you want to confront and deal with me in those places. I pray that for myself. I pray that for our church community. That as we are transformed by your mercy and your great peace, then we will go out and offer it to our friends and to our families this season. We wait, Lord, and we wait with bated breath for you to return, we so need you to return so that you create peace in the world. And in that time, we will struggle, we will cry, we will sing, we will read, we will pray, but we will also 
experience little ordinary moments of peace. And let us give thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.